Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we hear from survivors of child sexual abuse about efforts to eliminate the civil statute of limitations on sexual assault in Connecticut. Now our show may not be suitable for all listeners. We hope you check back to our podcast feed to listen at a time that's better for you. Now advocates want state legislators to eliminate or at least extend the statute of limitations, something that 24 states have done, including New York and New Jersey. And later, we talked to an expert on child and family trauma about why it can take decades for adult survivors of childhood sexual abuse to acknowledge or talk about what happened to them. My first guest is a survivor of child sexual abuse. Lori Temple was 58 years old in 2019 when she read a Hartford Current article about a Hartford Archdiocese list of 48 Catholic clergymen who had been credibly accused of sexually abusing minors. Lori says that article brought back memories of abuse that she endured when she was a child. Lori Temple is co-leader of the Connecticut chapter of SNAP, that's the Survivors Network of Those Abused by Priests. Lori, welcome to our show. Hi, Lucy. Thank you. Now, I had mentioned uh, this episode or episodes that happened when when you were a child the man that you allege abused you was a priest and when you scanned that list of clergymen who had abused children his name was not there so what did you do next so um yeah i i read the list it opened um up some memories that i had kept buried for a long long time and my first thought was, well, I've got to call the archdiocese and tell them they left him off the list. <laughs> so um, that's what I did. I called the archdiocese. The person that answered the phone, I kind of told her why I was calling. She looked up in some database and said, oh, there's nobody there by that name. Um, I'm going to put you through the archive department. Put me through the archive department Um they had an outgoing voicemail message saying that they were not releasing information to the public. So I called back and then um, she put me through to uh, the victim assistance coordinator. So, you know, here I am dealing with these memories that just all of a sudden opened up inside of me, you know, very emotional, um, talking on the phone with this stranger, at that time, she was very, you know, compassionate, asking me a lot of questions about what happened and um, said that I would have to submit a formal report to the archdiocese for the records. This priest was from the Philippines, and I did not know how to spell his name, and I couldn't tell her exactly how old I was when it happened. You know, I, I, we lived next to the rectory uh, of this church in East Hartford when I was seven, um, so I knew it was after I was seven, but I didn't have the exact date. And I just wanted to have that information to be able to put it into the report. So um, that just became, uh, turned into a many month um, 
difficult experience. Um, most of my phone calls and emails were ignored. Um, finally, I got an email from her saying that um, he, uh, they found out that he was from the um, uh, Philippines, a diocese in the Philippines, and that he was not part of the Archdiocese of Hartford. And they still claimed he was never there. And, um, you know, of course, I'm pushing back and I'm saying he was there. And um, so, you know, she ends up saying to me, uh, well, you know, things were looser back then. Um, priests, you know, were just coming and going and they really didn't have any oversight. And I said, but he lived next door to me. He had a car. Somebody was feeding him. You know, he had gas money. You have to have a record somewhere. And even back then, I remember when, you know, in the church, they would hand out those paper uh, bulletins, right? And on that paper bulletin would be the priest's name. So I, I know there are records of this priest somewhere. So some weeks later, she got back to me and um, told me the dates he was there, which uh, were between 1968 and 1970. And, you know, for me, it just felt like somebody punched me in the stomach uh, just to realize that the abuse began when I was just eight years old. Um, I asked her what came next. She said the report would be kept on file at the archdiocese. And since it was out of the statute of limitations, there was no more uh, responsibility of the archdiocese to, to do anything. And that was kind of like the end of it. And I didn't understand anything about a statute of limitations. I didn't understand anything. I just wanted them to know that this guy did this to me. He needed to be on that list. And, um, you know, we needed to make sure he still wasn't out there doing it to other kids, which she did tell me in her research, she found out that he had died. So just to, just to backtrack a little, when I was seven, we moved into a house in East Hartford, right next door to the St. Isaac Jones Rectory. The actual church was actually a couple miles away. Um, and in this uh, rectory, there was one, I'll call him the head priest. He was there for years and years, but they had other priests that would come and go. So one day, a priest from the Philippines pulled up in his car and, and he was there. And um, he quickly uh, befriended my family. Um, my parents would invite him over for dinners, cookouts, you know, our house tended to be the neighborhood hangout house. So he was always, you know, out playing basketball or hanging out, you know, where all the kids were hanging out. So it was just became a very normal thing to have him hanging around. Um, but after I read that article, what came back to me is I remember numerous times of him walking with me up the hill to a nearby park and molesting me in the woods. And I also remember countless times of him driving me to the church and being in the part of the church where the priest's robes were hung up and he'd molest me, perform mass, and then drive me home. You know, for me, this was also confusion, confusing and shameful. I had no way of knowing what was going on. And um, I just really regressed into myself um, about all of this. Um, Lori, I'm so sorry that happened to you as a child. And because of, of what happened, you, you were not comfortable talking about it uh, as a child. And so, you know, 
when you read that article and you started calling the archdiocese and, and wanted answers and acknowledgement that this person existed and that he did this to you, it took many months to even get that acknowledgement from the archdiocese. What else do you want to hear from the archdiocese? And when you talk about the statute of limitations, um, you know, how you have moved into this advocacy role for people who've experienced what you've experienced. Right. So, you know, I, at, you know, after everything ended with the archdiocese and they just were going to file my report away, I just was angry. I was just angry about how I was treated. Um, you know, sharing the most vulnerable thing of my life with a stranger over the phone who was nice to me that one time and then all the other times was just very cold and callous. Just to me, is that just not the way the church should treat people, right? So I researched as much as I could about statute limitations, which led me to SNAP, the Connecticut Alliance to End Sexual Violence, and Child USA. And that became my, uh, began my journey of advocacy to change, uh, to change the law. Um, also in my research, just because I knew that there had to be something out there with his name on there, I, be, I did come across some old newspaper articles where his name uh, was mentioned as being a priest of St. Isaac Doge's Church. And these were in the Hartford Current in 1970. Um, not that it, I didn't need the validation. I knew he was there, but this was just, you know, I could just show other people, see, I'm not crazy. He was there. Um, but honestly, Lucy, you know, my life was permanently altered the first time he touched me, you know, um, I began to wet the bed at age eight. I had nightmares. I would sneak into my parents' room and sleep on the floor next to my mom's side of the bed just because I was so scared. You know, I ended up as I was getting older, I had a lot of stomach, digestive issues, all due to anxiety. Um, I got married young to someone who was just as damaged as I was. And of course that didn't last. Um, went through a period of substance abuse. Um, a lot of anxiety, debilitating panic attacks. I couldn't work for most of my 20s. Um, and, you know, for me, I didn't, I, that was just my life. I just dealt with it. I just went on. I just, that's, that was my life path. But I realize now by being in therapy that, that this priest, he haunts me in all of my relationships. Um, the abuse is woven into the tapestry of my life and it's defined who I am and the choices I've made. So the advocacy work to change the statute of limitations in Connecticut is my way to deal with the pain and my way to reclaim my power. If I can be a strong advocate, I can help other survivors heal. And most importantly, absolutely to me is just expose predators and ultimately keep children safe because I don't want what happened to me uh, to happen to another child. You're hearing Lori Temple here on Where We Live. She's co-leader of the Connecticut chapter of SNAP. That's the Survivors Network of Those Abused by Priests. We're talking about efforts, again, in our state to eliminate the civil statute of limitations in Connecticut. Right now, the cutoff age is 48. The state recently updated its law by extending the cutoff age to 51, but this change only applies to offenses committed after October 1st, 2019. If you're listening and you want additional resources, you can 
contact the Connecticut Alliance Against Sexual Violence. That's 1-888-999-5545. We'll also tweet out information to connect with the Connecticut chapter of SNAP, which Lori is a part of. So, Lori, uh, given what I just shared about the law as it stands now, your case could not go to civil court in Connecticut because it's outside the statute of limitations. But you do have a claim pending with the Archdiocese of Hartford. Can you talk about that? Yes. Um, so once I learned about SNAP, um, they had a national conference that was coming up in Virginia in the spring of that year. And so I went to it. And um, in that conference, they had a lot of different speakers. And um, one of the speakers was an attorney called Mitchell Garabedian. Um, I had never heard of him before. But for anybody that has uh, watched the movie Spotlight, um, his his uh, the attorney in that movie is based on uh, Mitch Garabedian and the work that he did to break open that um, uh, sex abuse scandal in Boston many years ago. So he's very well versed in working with churches, working with this um, stuff. And so I had a, you know, we just had a conversation in the lobby one day and I told him my story and he said, you know what, let me see if I can help you. He said, sometimes these archdioceses will do the right thing, um, even though you're out of the statute of limitations. He's like, it doesn't hurt to try. And he's like, I want to try to help you. Um, so we do have a claim pending. As far as I know, they still claim he never was there. So, you know, we're back to that. Um, but again, for me, um, and I, I would say for other survivors um, that deal with this it's really you know it, it's not about the money it's about getting people to hear me and getting them to take responsibility um they can't say things were looser back then and have that be their you know <laughs> get out of jail card you know free card um shame on them if things were looser back then but um you know this happened to me it has absolutely permanently changed my life. Um, and so I just feel that they have a responsibility uh, to take because of that. Uh, where We Live producer Sujatha Srinivasan uh, reached out to the Archdiocese of Hartford. She heard back from David Elliott, who's the Associate Director of Communications, and we were uh, requesting uh, a statement in response to, again, uh, efforts by survivors of child sexual abuse by priests and others to eliminate the civil statute of limitations in Connecticut. Uh, David shared this statement. Quote, it's the long-standing policy of the Archdiocese of Hartford to not discuss pending claims. As today's discussion involves how claims and the statute of limitations interface, it's important to note the Archdiocese of Hartford's legal counsel continues to work with claimants. Do you want to respond to that statement, Lori? I, you know, in my last conversation with uh, my attorney, things have just been at a stalemate, so I don't know what they mean by working with claimants. 
We're going to continue uh, talking about this issue here on Where We Live. Again, you're hearing Lori Temple, who is a co-leader of the Connecticut chapter of SNAP, Survivors Network of Those Abused by Priests. She's also a survivor of child sexual abuse. And we're going to talk more about efforts to eliminate the civil statute of limitations on sexual assault in Connecticut. You can join us. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're hearing from survivors of childhood sexual abuse about their efforts to get Connecticut lawmakers to eliminate the civil statute of limitations on sexual assault. The change would allow survivors to hold their abusers accountable at any point in their lives. Research finds the average disclosure age of child victims of sexual assault is 52 years old. Coming up, we hear from an attorney who heads Child U.S. Advocacy. Catherine Robb is a survivor of childhood sexual abuse and helped change laws in states that eliminated or pushed out the statute of limitations. Right now, uh, my next guest is Dr. Stephen Marins. He's co-director of the Yale Center for Traumatic Stress and Recovery. Marins develops early interventions to help reduce the persistence or even the development of post-traumatic stress. And part of his work is informing lawmakers on the impact of childhood trauma trauma in adults. Dr. Stephen Marins is also a psychoanalyst and professor of psychiatry at Yale School of Medicine. Stephen, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lucy. Can you help us understand and our listeners understand why it can take years for people to remember sexual abuse that they endured as children? Sure. First, I want to begin by by, um, thanking Lori for speaking up. Um, You are not alone, Lori, and unfortunately, too many children Uh, have uh, had to experience and endure the trauma of child sexual abuse alone. And in fact, it's it's not uncommon, as you suggest, that um, uh, by the the very nature of that number, the age at which disclosure occurs, but also the U.S. Department of Justice uh, has estimated that 86% of of experiences of uh, sexual assault go unreported So it's actually very, very common for a number of reasons. Um, 
I'd like to remind listeners that they may have had their own experiences in which talking with family members, one family member might remember something uh, and a number uh, of other family members may join in, but you may be the one who doesn't remember. There are many reasons why we don't remember, but we know a good deal about the fact that when someone is traumatized, when they're overwhelmed, their minds, their abilities uh, to organize their thoughts and their feelings are uh, immobilized or severely compromised. As human beings, we have a lot of uh, ways of protecting ourselves from the, the pain and the suffering that is accompanied by uh, traumatic uh, dysregulation that occurs when children are sexually abused. And we protect ourselves in a way by not remembering. Um, and in fact, in the uh, DSM classification for post-traumatic disorders, disruptions um, uh, of memory is one of the criteria for the diagnosis of PTSD. And alternatively, uh, for some intrusive thoughts, meaning the inability to uh, keep at bay uh, memories of the most horrific experiences is also uh, part of the criteria for post-traumatic disorder. So it's actually not, Lori's story is not surprising, nor is it uncommon. Uh, and there are a number of things that make it so hard for, for children to disclose at the time. Uh, that includes the sense of shame and humiliation, the absolute confusion uh, based on uh, a combination of a sense of betrayal, uh, a sense of confusion about what they're actually experiencing. Sometimes children not even recognizing that what's happening to them is abuse. They can also worry about retaliation, particularly when threats have been made or when there's an ambivalent connection to uh, the, the abuser. Uh, they can also worry about their parents' reaction. And in some situations, uh, they can actually worry about um, about being blamed for what occurred. And so often uh, children will actually blame themselves for the discomfort uh, that uh, and about the events that actually gave rise to so much traumatic distress. You shared that statistic from the Department of Justice data suggests that 86% of child sexual abuse goes unreported altogether. That's really disturbing. And it makes me think that as adults, we are failing children. And when you think, when well, you talk about stigma, I'm just wondering if you could maybe, you know, share with us, you know, as a society, do we discourage even adult survivors, victims of child abuse to speak up? Absolutely. Um, and I think that, that it's also, uh, it's very, very hard for people who have not been, have not had the experience of child sexual abuse to even tolerate a focus in their own thinking about what that experience might be for children. So I think it's, it's, it's a way of uh, turning a blind eye to, uh, to what is most disturbing to the vast majority of us when we think about the inappropriate, completely unacceptable behavior on the part of adults who exploit children for their own sexual satisfaction. I understand that you and your work uh, often um, present uh, you know, what 
your research shows, um, what you have what you've learned in your career um, as a co-director of the Yale Center for Traumatic Stress and Recovery. Uh, you you talk often to lawmakers about this, and so when we're talking about this uh, efforts again to either eliminate or further extend the statute of limitations on sexual assault, you know, what points do you raise to lawmakers, to policymakers about you know why this these changes? Um, are needed from the perspective of survivors? Well, I think that Lori actually said it best. She wants to be heard and she wants to be listened to. And too often for a number of reasons that I mentioned, uh, their children who are abused are not able to have a voice for their own experiences and too often They have had the experience based on their concerns and sometimes on the reactions of others that nobody wants to hear. There are many children who, uh, in in later life, children who are abused in later life, uh, in some studies, um, you know, into the the, um, late disclosures. Uh, one, One comment that was found to be not uncommon was, nobody asked me. So the very notion that they're Lori's example of having so many symptoms, but no one was asking, uh, nobody was inquiring about what might be um, precipitating, what might have have, um, stimulated uh, these terrible symptoms that she was suffering. Well, I'm looking at Connecticut's current law mandating that child sex abuse survivors file legal claims against their abusers before their 51st birthdays. Again, we're hearing about efforts to you know, eliminate that, that civil statute of limitations. You know, to come up with a number of for people that they have to disclose this uh, to try to seek justice, you know, that, that can be difficult when, as we've heard from you and others, that the acknowledgement, the memories that come back, they can come back at any point and to not feel like, as you mentioned, that they're not being heard, that there's no way for them to seek justice. That can be a hard pill to swallow. Absolutely. And I also think that the circumstances in which uh, people remember is also not dissimilar to what Lori described. Um, There can be any number of things that bring forward uh, memories that uh, have understandably been uh, uh, locked away. Um, And so when an individual finally gets to the place of being able to tolerate the some of the worst experiences of their life, um, that that to be heard and to have some accountability uh, is actually a confirmation and a reversal of the earliest experience of many, many years of being alone. You're hearing Stephen Marins here on Where We Live, co-director of the Yale Center for Traumatic Stress and Recovery. I understand today you'll also be doing a Zoom uh, session organized by the Connecticut Alliance to End Sexual Violence in conjunction with SNAP and, and Child USA. Lawmakers have been invited. What will you be sharing with them today? Well, I think as part of this effort to increase public awareness, that means being able to actually tolerate looking at a, at a major problem that impacts children and um, adult survivors uh, throughout our country and around the world, and being able to help people appreciate 
what the experience is like, what actually occurs in terms of the alterations of uh, how children think, feel about themselves, about the world, and the impact on their subsequent development is so important in terms of elevating uh, the appreciation of the severity of uh, child sexual abuse as a major um, uh, traumatic event. And that when there is an absence of, uh, of understanding, appreciation, and even identification that it has occurred, uh, how often the symptoms, the post-traumatic symptoms that follow uh, become chronic adaptations that interfere with optimal development um, that can impact people over a lifetime without appropriate help and support. Again, you're hearing Stephen Marins here on Where We Live. He's also a psychoanalyst and professor of psychiatry at Yale School of Medicine. Thank you for your time today. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. Uh, Dana shared with us on Facebook, I don't think there should be a statute of limitations on child sexual abuse or any sexual abuse. Our society has a long history of shaming victims, and that makes it really hard to open up about what happened to you, especially if it's happening within your family or within your friend circle, which we know is often the majority of the time. We're going to talk more about that after the break. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about efforts to help survivors of childhood sexual abuse, specifically efforts to eliminate the civil statute of limitations on sexual assault. Uh, joining us now on Zoom is Catherine Robb, attorney and executive director of Child U.S. Advocacy. Catherine's also a survivor of child sexual abuse. Catherine, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. And with us on Zoom uh, is Lori Temple, who we spoke to earlier in the show. She's co-leader of the Connecticut chapter of SNAP. That's the Survivors Network of Those Abused by Priests. Uh, Catherine, I'll start with you. Uh, before we talk about efforts again in our state uh, to eliminate the statute of limitations, uh, civil statute of limitations, I wanted to hear a little bit about your story and, and what led you to the work that you're doing today. Certainly. I'm a survivor of child sexual abuse in the family, which is really the largest piece of this ugly pie of this epidemic of child sexual abuse. Um, I was abused starting when I was about eight years old by a family member, and it continued till I was about 14 or 15. Um, I started advocating uh, you know, around 2000, uh, worked on some legislation here in Connecticut and uh, worked on legislation for about 12 years in New York. Um, also got involved in many other states, um, Michigan, Montana, Washington, D.C., New Jersey, Vermont, Arizona. And, you know, that list just keeps growing every single year. So um, as um, a survivor of child sexual abuse, 
as an attorney and also as a mom, you know, I believe that we need to change our statute of limitations for this horrific crime that, uh, as Dr. Marin said, is at epidemic proportions. I'm sorry that happened to you when you were a child, Catherine. And, and when were you able to talk about or acknowledge what happened to you? I wasn't able to um, speak publicly about it until I was in my mid-40s. And of course, many of the statute of limitations across the country, they're very restrictive. And they, they really sort of copy other typical tort civil claims that are just not appropriate for um, these types of horrific claims for children. So I started speaking in my in my 40s um, and they got very involved um, in my in my 50s in, in changing laws across the country because, you know, there are just sound public policy reasons to change these laws. Um, the more we change them, the more we eliminate statute of limitations, the safer our children will be. Um, so now I'm, I'm very open about it. I, I speak across the country. I'm flying to Nebraska to testify there tomorrow. Um, I testify on Friday, excuse me. And, you know, I, I get involved in uh, this type of legislation all over the country and also at the federal level as well. So um, I went from a little girl who was eight years old who was, could never speak about it and was petrified and shamed and embarrassed to someone who is really um, advocating all over the country so I can protect uh, children out there from going through what I went through. Oh, in your advocacy work, as you work not only in, in Connecticut, but in other states um, related to the, the civil statute of limitations on sexual abuse, sexual assault, what are you hearing from lawmakers? What are the sticking points uh, for them when they consider whether to eliminate or even push the civil statute of limitations out further, Catherine? Well, we, we tend to get the same arguments in opposition on the other side. One is... This is uncommon. This is an outlier. Uh, this is extraordinary. And that's just not the case. You know, right now, <clears throat> excuse me, we have uh, 24 states plus the District of Columbia that have uh, revival language or window language. We have 15 states that have completely eliminated the statute of limitations for civil wrongs. This is a national movement to protect children and to give survivors justice. So it's definitely not an outlier. The other argument we get quite frequently, excuse me, frequently is, it's not fair, you know, how about due process? And, you know, one of my arguments is that uh, due process is not an absolute right. Um, and these are very, very different types of civil torts. We're not talking about a slip and fall case or a fender bender case or a breach of contract case. To be clear, we are talking about the rape sodomy and sexual assault of children. Um, and, you know, one of the things I say when I'm testifying uh, to lawmakers is why should sexual predators and bad acting institutions be protected by the passage of time while victims suffer in perpetuity? It, it just doesn't make sense. Uh, we get other arguments about bankruptcy and courts being flooded and that type of thing. And, and that's just not the case. Um, we also get arguments that, you know, statute of limitations has a purpose. You know, 
people's memories fade and evidence is lost. And my argument to that is, I believe in the statute of limitations. I believe that it has a really important uh, purpose. But again, these are not typical torts. And plaintiffs still have to prove their cases. There are still safeguards in place, like the rules of evidence, the rules of civil procedure. And attorneys, um, like the great work of Mitch Garabedian and many others, they they won't take weak cases. You know, um, If we don't have the evidence, we can't move forward. So there are so many safeguards in place. Uh, but most importantly, these are not your typical civil wrongs. Again, you're hearing Catherine Robb here on Where We Live. She's an attorney, executive director of Child U.S. Advocacy, and a survivor of child sexual abuse. As we talk about efforts, again, to eliminate or further push out the civil statute of limitations on sexual assault. Uh, when we talk about uh, this in our state, um, I understand that Connecticut has been a leader in statute of limitations reform, but it sounds like we are falling behind other states in this area of sexual assault. Catherine. Oh, Connecticut is way behind. It is true that in 2002, Connecticut was, you know, at the top of the class. But you know what? Our understanding based on the science of traumatology, understanding the just the raw numbers of this epidemic, um, other states have taken the lead and moved forward. Many, many other states. And in 2021, we had Kentucky, Arkansas, Nevada, Louisiana, Maine, Colorado um, make significant changes. And really now Connecticut is in the back of the class, especially as to revival types of legislation, really with almost a failing grade compared to other states that have moved forward. You know, in 2019, we had just a banner year of, I believe we had nine states that passed uh, SOL revival legislation. So really Connecticut, sadly, um, is in the back of the class. When we talk about Connecticut specifically, who's op opposing uh, this elimination or, or pushing out uh, of the civil statute of limitations, Catherine? Primarily the Catholic Church. And their arguments? Um, you know, they're the typical arguments uh, that I just mentioned, you know, that it's not fair, that maybe we're picking on the church, um, that, you know, memories fade, all of those typical will go bankrupt, all of that, those arguments that that just don't stand up. Um, and I really want to let your um, listeners know that the vast majority of child sexual abuse happens in the family based on studies at somewhere between 38 to 40 percent. And then we, we see it in youth organi uh, youth serving organizations. We see it in, with doctors, in educational institutions, really in every sector of society. But the vast majority is in family. And, you know, the numbers are something like four to six percent happen in religious institutions. So really when the Catholic Church continues to fight these efforts across the country, um, they are denying justice and keeping those hidden predators, you know, in the dark where parents don't know across the country for all abuse, not just abuse that happens with clergy. 
I had shared the statement from the Archdiocese of Hartford earlier in the show. I'll, again, the legal counsel, they say the legal counsel continues to work with claimants and their attorneys to try to resolve credible clergy sexual abuse claims, regardless of whether the statute of limitations has already expired. Can you respond to that statement, Catherine, when we think about, you know, again, the burden of proof falling on uh, survivors and how this can be challenging when many may remember decades after they were abused? Honestly, I believe that the Catholic Church is being disingenuous in this regard. Um, the, the public policy and their policy should be zero tolerance. Because what happens when we reform statute limitations for this type of just horrific harm is we do three things. Most importantly, we identify hidden predators. So as long as the Catholic Church is lobbying against this type of legislation in Connecticut and across the country, they are facilitating um, keeping those dangerous sexual predators hidden. The other thing that happens when we change these laws is we shift the cost of this abuse away from the victims and the victims' families and by the way, the state of Connecticut, we shift that the cost of that abuse from them to the bad guys, to the sexual predators, to the institutions who had bad policies and practices. And finally, what statute of limitation reform will do is it educates the public about, you know, the epidemic of this problem across our state and across the country. Again, you're hearing Catherine Robb here on Where We Live, Executive Director of the Child U.S. Advocacy, a survivor of child sexual abuse. Uh, if you've been listening and want more resources, you can reach out to the Connecticut Alliance Against Sexual Violence. That's one eight eight eight. 999-5545. And we can also put you in touch with the Connecticut chapter of SNAP. That's the Survivors Network for Those Abused by Priests. Our number is 888-720-9677. And we can get, again, you connected uh, to those resources. I mentioned that Lori Temple is still with us, who's co-leader of Connecticut SNAP. And again, Lori has a claim pending with the Archdiocese of Hartford. Lori, you went before lawmakers, I believe, in either 2019 or 2020. Can you talk about what you shared with them and that experience for you? Um, yeah, I testified a, a shortened version of uh, what happened to me in my story. Um, and what I really wanted to ask them was, you know, just try to connect with them human to human. Why should my memories and my story and my pain be any less relevant than someone who is 46 or, you know, 42 or 48 that falls under that magic number. You know, how can an arbitrary age be placed on when a mind remembers something? You know, people have to understand PTSD is complex and memories get triggered, you know, uh, for people in a various, you know, different ways. And there really is not a way to put a time cap on that. Um, so I just want people to think about why is there a time cap? Who are we protecting by having that time cap? And, um, you know, now let's let now be the time that we get rid of that and we allow survivors to reclaim their lives and uh, to come forward. I will say, I'm just going to say in my advocacy work with the legislators, I met with many, many, many of them. And I have to say the majority of them very much in support of this. 
there are a few key people in positions of power that are not on board with this. And I've been led to believe that, you know, the church has a hold over some of these legislators. And I just find that sickening. I find it sickening that a church that, again, is supposed to be for goodwill for men is in doing whatever they're doing with our lobbyists. So, you know, so they won't vote for this to protect the church. I just find that very dirty and um, that bothers me. So we have our work cut out for us, but, you know, we're moving ahead this session and and hoping that uh, that will be successful. I believe that the bill uh, to extend or eliminate the civil statute limitations on sexual assault did not make it out of the legislative's Judiciary Committee in 2020. And so when we talk about a movement on this bill this year, Lori, do we know uh, who will be sponsoring that bill yet? And what movement uh, do you hope to see in this upcoming session? Uh, We are hoping to have the Children's Committee um, sponsor the bill and have a, a public hearing through the Children's Committee and um, try that route. So that's going to be our our, um, uh, strategy this time. Uh, Catherine had touched on this when we talk about a reform of civil statute limitations, how it can deter hidden abusers now in the future. Uh, Lori, did you want to respond to that? Oh, absolutely. Um, Again, my uh, abuser is dead. Many of these abusers are alive. I know Catherine could back me up on this statistic, but I believe a serial pedophile um, harms over 100 children in their lifetime. So, you know, if you're 60 now and this happened to you when you were eight and that priest is still alive, he most probably is still abusing. So we have to get these people off the streets, away from kids, and we have to keep kids safe. People don't think this is happening in their neighborhoods or in their schools. It is. It's everywhere, honestly. And, um, you know, we just have to we have to do what we can to save kids. Catherine, Rob, did you want to respond to what Lori shared? I agree with Lori completely, and and I thank her for her bravery. Um, I think what I would say to lawmakers here in Connecticut is this. Most, the vast majority of lawmakers are really good people that are, um, you know, doing a really important service for the people of Connecticut. And I think they're just ill-informed. So I would say to the leaders, especially leaders of key, key committees and majority leaders in both chambers, is that you have a choice. You either stand with children and stand with justice, or you stand with sexual perpetrators and institutions that cover those perpetrators up. And I would state even further that when you block these uh, pieces of legislation that eliminate um, statute of limitations or create revival laws or windows, you are essentially becoming co-conspirators in the cover-up of child rape. It's just that simple. And I think uh, we just need to keep educating these lawmakers and keep pressuring them to do the right thing, because sadly, this problem is at epidemic Portions. Over 10% of children will be sexually assaulted most repeatedly before their 18th birthday. If that's not an epidemic, I don't know what is. 
Uh, we also heard uh, from someone on uh, Facebook uh, who shared these statues restrict justice. It takes decades for people to come forward after sexual abuse and sexual assault. And um, I just wanted to share that, that we've been talking about that, as we've heard from our guests uh, throughout uh, the hour. Uh, before we run out of time, uh, Lori, I wanted to go back to you because I mentioned that you're co-leader of Connecticut SNAP. And I'm wondering, um, you know, when we talk about this network uh, to support people uh, who are survivors, if you can talk a little bit about that, you know, how uh, you are able to support others who've experienced what you've experienced. Um, so we have, um, it's a national organization. We have a Connecticut chapter with three leaders. We have a monthly support group uh, for people. Uh, it's all done virtually now, of course, because of COVID. Um, they have, uh, survivors have access to us three co-leaders at any time, and we will uh, get them connected to resources um, that can help them. And we don't just restrict it to survivors of people that have been abused by priests. If there are other survivors, um, you know, that need help and are hurting, um, they certainly can join a survivor group and we will do what we can uh, to help them, educate them and help them. But it's truly a support group. And, um, you know, it's, we have uh, people in that support group that are in a lot, a lot of pain. And I think our support group is really what's keeping them going. Well, Laura, I wanted to thank you for coming on the show to talk about your advocacy work, but also the fact that you shared your story with us. Uh, Lori, we really appreciate it. Thank you for coming on today. Thank you, Lucy. Catherine Robb has also been with us. She's executive director of the Child U.S. Advocacy and survivor of child sexual abuse. Catherine, thank you for your time today on the show. Thank you, Lucy. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Sujatha Srinivasan. Our technical director is Kat Pastor. We'll be back tomorrow. Mm-hmm.